What's good, y'all? My name is Jonathan Dumas, and this is the Real Talk with Dumas podcast, where I have real conversations with the people I see every day because we don't know what we miss until we miss them. And I'm back, y'all. It has been a minute since I dropped an episode, and uh, I took a unannounced break from podcasting. I just found that I was not having any energy to do it, and so I did it. So I am back. I have so much creative energy putting this thing out. I've been working on multiple episodes in the last few weeks, so I'm really excited to get back into a rhythm. Um, And speaking of rhythms, I had mentioned before that I was going to start putting out episodes every week. That was a really ambitious goal. I want to thank me for believing in me, but that is not going to work. I am going to go back to the old cadence where it's the first and third Wednesday of each month. It's just a better rhythm for me for the foreseeable future. So I wanted to put this episode out and then starting July, we'll be back to an every other week schedule. Second, the Patreon page is live for RTWD. Yo, if you have ever been inspired, challenged, encouraged, or just loved the show, this is a great way to support. And even more than that, you can get involved in the real fam community. You know, I took my time curating some good stuff for y'all. I had a focus group, shout out them, that like gave me some great feedback on each tier and how it looks and everything like that. So I'm really excited for this. And just a few examples of what you'll see for each tier is the monthly What's Good blog where I'll have like music recommendation, book recommendation, podcast recommendation, all that stuff. And then um, there's some Google Hangouts to go deeper on show topics. So you'll actually be able to interact with the people that were on the show, past and future and an opportunity for folks to be featured on the show. So you, if you donate at a certain tier, you can be on the show. So if you don't know what Patreon is or want more info, I break it down in a video on that Patreon page. So go check out the link in the show notes and it will take you right to the page. A final update, which is like the biggest one, (laughs) is I quit my job. So it has always been a dream of mine to own my own business. So I started it. Um, a few months ago, I, I started a coaching and organizational development consulting firm. We are called Common Culture Coaching and Consulting, where our mission is to normalize everyday experiences for everyday workplaces. So we do this through a diversity, equity, inclusivity, and justice perspective. So on the consulting side, we work with teams and organizations with organizational development efforts, such as DEI trainings and facilitations. Um, we do department restructures and general like organizational health analysis. On the coaching side, I work one-on-one with clients who feel lost or stuck or without purpose in their careers or their jobs. And I empower them to reset their passion to get what they want out of what they do. So speaking of entrepreneurship, I want to introduce y'all to my friend, Chriselle Mendoza, the person I'm going to be interviewing today. Chriselle is a writer and entrepreneur with a passion for sharing stories, connecting people, and empowering people of color to go for their passions. See, we, we peas in the pod. When she's not busy working on the many different projects circling in her head, she likes to eat new foods, travel, and sleep. So Chriselle is also the founder of Empowered in Color. And what is Empowered in Color, you ask? Don't worry, she shares much about it in our conversation where we talk about the difficulties of being an entrepreneur of color, why you can give back and make a profit, and what allyship looks like in business and in life. All right, y'all, here's Griselle. All right, first of all, tell the real fam like who you are, and then I want you to go into Empowered in Color, because Empowered in Color is like a, an amazing platform that you've developed and have been doing for the last few years, so I would, I would love for you to share who you are and about Empowered in Color. Yes. So my name is Chriselle. I am 
I guess I can call myself a social entrepreneur based in Las Vegas, but originally from Long Beach. LB, Shout let's out go. to LB. Um, <laughs> and I am kind of, I do everything. <laughs> it's, and I have a lot of interests. I have ADHD. I talk openly about that. I'm, I'm an open book. And if you mm. can't tell by the tone of my voice already, I am an, I call myself an extreme extrovert. I am one of those people that I will talk to anyone who will give me the time of day. I'm one of those mm. people that actually enjoys public speaking <laughs> and is not like <laughs> mortified by it. Um, you know, just different things like that. I, and I don't know. I just like love everything. I, I can't make up my mind. I can't stick to just one thing. But having said that, going into Empowered in Color, Empowered in Color is my baby. It's something that I've been nurturing over the last few years. And 2021 is really the year that I, I'm working to take it to the next level. Mm. The best way to, to describe us is that we like to help people of color thrive in both business and in life. And that is through connection. And also more recently, combining social justice and entrepreneurship. Um, mm. I would I would probably say social justice and entrepreneurship is more of a value, a core value for Empowered in Color, because I think okay. it bleeds out into the work that we do. Um, when people think about entrepreneurship and starting a business, you think of like, like Shark Tank type of things, you think of Gary Vee, you think of those kinds of people, but we don't normally think about social justice. Um, we don't normally think about activism as part of that. When people think about those things, they think of nonprofits. And mm -hmm. we can talk more about this later, but when I first started Empowered in Color, it was something I was really conflicted about because to me, I viewed it as why is it, just because I'm trying to care for my community that I need to not be a charity case, but like I need to be a nonprofit. Like mm -hmm. I should be able to make a profit off of what I'm doing, but I also know myself that I think it's possible to not exploit people in the process, you know, like, yeah. like I think people can deeply care about an issue or a cause or whatever you want to call it and, and make money off of it. And, and also, like I said, not exploit people. We we're so used to the Amazons of the world. And I've heard this a lot from other entrepreneurs of color specifically. I don't really mm -hmm. hear this from white entrepreneurs. It's this whole conflict of tug of war between um, giving back to our communities, but also like, well, I want to, I want to make a profit. I want to, um, take care of myself and my family and set up yeah. my legacy and, and travel and, you know, live the lifestyle that I want. But I also want to give back. But what does that make me? Does that make me a nonprofit, you know? So mm -hmm. that's, so that's kind of the essence of Empowered in Color. It's a lot of, like I said, we, we talk about social justice and entrepreneurship and everything that's, and everything in between. Um, and, and talking about resources, DI, um, I think another big, a really big value 
and something that's really important to me is also access to resources. And that's what we strive to do with everything with the podcast, which is obviously free and always going to be free. And slowly as we're starting to release more informational products, we're going to start doing workshops and, and stuff like that. We want to be able to provide resources for people of color because so many times that I've in this entrepreneurial space I've been, I've been in, I've been in this space for like eight years now. And mm -hmm. so many times I've heard from white entrepreneurs saying like, if you don't, if you can't afford to invest thousands of dollars in your business, then you shouldn't run a business. You need to just work more. You need to just get another job. You need to just do this. And it's like, how privileged of you is it to say that? Or when people say, well, if you can't afford my $500 course, my $1,000 course, then you just don't care about yourself. You just don't care about yeah. investing yourself. Mm -hmm. It's like, excuse me, trust me, I am doing all that I can, but I literally cannot afford to spend $500 on, on your course. I, I would yeah. rather pay my bills and put food on the table than exactly. pay $500 <laughs> for your course. I don't think that exactly. means that I, I can't, I don't like investing in myself. So, yep, yep. um, and color is really trying to flip that on its head and, and be really honest and brutally honest about that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and everything that comes with it. So talking about mental health, you know, we talked about the BLM protests last summer on the podcast and things like that. It's more than just your career. It's more than just a business. It's more than just getting promoted at your job. It's, it's everything in between because that affects you, right? We don't live in a vacuum. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, that's my whole spiel. No, that's so good. That's so good. And I, I mean, there's so many directions I could go with what you shared, but I really want to hit on something that like sticks out to me is that like, and I've shared this before um, in previous episodes, but I talk about like capitalism and how, mm -hmm. how it just like the, at the heart of capitalism, I'll say this, whiteness <laughs> and capitalism going together, mm -hmm. it breeds a bad recipe for marginalized communities, mm -hmm. um, for poor people, mm -hmm. for, you know, because like it, 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 it will only benefit those who have power and authority. And um, in America, our capitalism is not necessarily split even. We're supposed to like build this competition, right? Mm -hmm. And to, it'll drive down prices, mm -hmm. but that's not actually what happens. What happens in America is there's four major brands. Mm -hmm. If you go into a mm -hmm. um, grocery store or Target, anything like that, that actually own and have control over all those things. That's a monopoly. That's yeah. not that's not that's not capitalism. Yeah. And so what I love about what you're saying is is like there is a way to make money and also care deeply, not just about like the work that you're doing, but the people that you're working with. Yeah. And just like have this like conscious conscious about the work that you're doing. Um and I've shared before with other folks about like Passion project, hopefully that comes to fruition in the next two to three. It will come to fruition in the next yes, two to three years. Yes. Um, but the, the the idea of like this community based like entrepreneurship, this community based like form of form of working with folks that like you give back what you receive. Mm -hmm. So like if you're gonna work and operate out of like my co working ideas is the I, that idea that I have is that like oh, oh. if you like if you're gonna be working out of this space that also means you have to give back to the community that you're working yes. in. So like yes. anybody that comes in here, you have to, you're opting into like giving a class mm -hmm. or teaching mm -hmm. like business lessons. And like, that is just a part of like your membership. Mm. That's a part of like you being a part of this. Yeah. And, you know, um, obviously we want to create like incentives to like incentivize doing that. 
But th- this is the idea of like giving back to the community that you're in. You know what I'm saying? And I just like it. It, it is solely possible. That's solely possible. Yeah. That's the first thing I'll say on that. The second thing I'll say on that is like I I love how you pointed it out. Marginalized communities and mainly like poor people are some of the hardest working group of people in America. Like in in anything. Like they work so hard. One job, two jobs, managing um, a household, making making things out of nothing. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. I've I've watched my single mom of three boys like work and hustle. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And like to say that they're that you don't care enough about like the next step in your like entrepreneurial journey or anything like that. That's just not possible. You just don't have the capacity. You have nothing else yeah. um, because there's so much demanded of you. So where for you do you think that that idea of just like giving back and wanting to support others? Obviously, you know, you got to take care of yourself. You got bills to pay. But like where does that, where does that, that value, it sounds like, that value of generosity come from? I honestly don't know if I'm being completely honest because I've always been like this ever mm-hmm. since I was a child. The mm. first, you know, when you ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? I was like four or five years old. And I, I remember my cousins asking me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my cousins are older. They're like 10 to 20 years older than me. So they're not like my friends. They're like authority figures to me. Mm, okay. And I said, I want to join the Peace Corps. <laughs> I didn't know anything <laughs> about it. I just, I just knew it had the word yeah. peace. And I'm like, oh, I want world peace. Like, I want to join the Peace Corps. And, yeah. you know, being a child of Im- This is where the being a child of immigrants comes out. Because they're like, oh, you're going to be poor. <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's what God. they said to me as like a four or five year old. And I'm like, okay, well, guess I'm not going to join the Peace Corps anymore. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. that squashed that dream like really quickly. So... I've just always had that kind of mentality. Like I've always wanted to help people. And as I've gotten older, I can see more of the ways that in which my background has shaped that too. Mm. You know, growing up, when you grow up as a child of immigrants, you you grow up with these collectivistic, you know, the the culture in the motherland is collectivistic, whereas here it's individualistic, right? Mm -hmm. So growing up with that, that feeling of family, like you're helping, you're helping other people, you're helping your family. Um, and then it was also growing up in a community of color. I didn't, like, I literally had one white friend growing up. Mm. So, you know, a lot of people talk about people of color, like in the public eye and stuff, they'll like, you normally hear about them being in predominantly white communities. And even in like movies and film, that's usually what you see, especially for like non-black stories you you see like Asian people they're in communi- they're in white communities only like you never see Asian people in like black and brown communities I don't know it's like mm. really weird and it's something that yeah. I've noticed um, as someone who did grow up like that not in these com- not in the communities that I see on TV and then mm-hmm. going to college in a predominant at a predominantly white institution and seeing the difference in what my peers in college had access to and the kinds of lifestyles they lived versus what I grew up with and and my friends growing up that I grew up with Mm -hmm. that also played a really big role to see how stark those differences were. I think going to college, leaving what, where I grew up and it was only 30 minutes away, mind you. Yeah. I didn't move that that far. far. (laughs) I did not move that far from home, but it couldn't have been more different. Mm -hmm. And that was a big culture shock to me. I knew it was coming, but it still hit me like a ton of bricks when it did. Yeah, And that played a really big role. And it was like, I can't, I don't understand how 
people can be successful and not give back to their communities or how people can become billionaires and not feel guilty about their workers being on like food stamps or on, mm. on like welfare. And I just don't, I just, I don't know. I, I just don't think it's smart. I, I think it's, I just don't understand it quite frankly. Yeah. Like, and like for me, why wouldn't you want to help other people? It's not a monopoly. There's more than enough for everybody. And that's something that I've really had to like consciously remind myself of is that like, don't feel intimidated by other people doing work similar to you, especially when you're doing like social impact work. It's not even just, mm -hmm. oh, I'm starting up a business selling some product. It's like when you're doing this kind of work, it can feel like really intimidating um, mm -hmm. when you're talking about race and stuff. And like, especially when with last summer, everything that happened and you see everyone talking about it now and a lot of DEI people are getting a lot of work from it. And it's like, oh, like, where do I fit into this? Um, yeah, but yeah. in reality, there's enough, there's more than enough to go around for everybody. And, and capitalism just makes us think that there isn't. Yeah. There's, we can all eat. We can yep. all eat at the table. We can all take care of ourselves. It's, you know, it's just in different ways. But mm, I don't even know if I'm answering good. the question. But no, I think you did. But I'm, I'm but and, and then you took it somewhere else too. Because I'm, I'm really curious too. Because me and Lens have talked about this before, and we've had multiple conversations in the last like couple weeks about. We are like made to believe that we have to like hustle, 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 grind, 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 mm -hmm. get this stuff because like if I don't do it, like somebody's gonna take it from me yeah. or like somebody's gonna get it and then I'll never have that yeah. opportunity mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. Or and it's it's actually it's actually really not true. Yeah. Like, you know, we can go to a grocery store and there's all this food there. Mm -hmm. And then we'll come back the next day after, you know, hundreds, maybe even thousands of people go in there mm -hmm. and it's still there. Yeah. And we don't have to be obviously we don't have to be over consumeristic. We don't have to like Eat, 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 mm -hmm. or, and, and horror. That's not what I'm talking yeah. about. But like, there is more than enough for for all of us. And I'm just curious. And you might not have thoughts on this, but like, how do we? And bring it even back to you, you know, empowered in color. How do we like change that mindset? Like, how do we shift Ooh. that in a business and from a business perspective of like, it is going to be all right. We do have enough. Keep going. Yeah. For me, that shift had to come from a lot of internal reflection and a lot of internal unlearning. Mm. Um, for me, I think for people of color, well, I guess everybody, everybody should be decolonizing, but I think a lot of it comes from decolonizing our mindsets because mm -hmm. all of this came to us because of colonization and therefore white supremacy, mm -hmm. right? And... It wasn't until, I don't know, in the last three or four years that I really started to nail it in my head that, yes, there is more than enough. Yes, there's always going to be someone else doing the same thing as me, but that's okay. That's mm -hmm. okay. They can do it too. We can both do it and be successful. It's obviously easier to say that than to actually believe it and practice that in your life, but it really comes from years and years of constantly um, deprogramming and reprogramming yourself, like mm -hmm. telling yourself that what we've been taught growing up and, and conditioned by society is a lie, quite frankly. Um, mm -hmm. And when you learn about how much wealth the top, the people at the top hoard, 
while their workers, which are the people that are around us in our communities, are struggling to get by, you know, it's, it kind of will shock you. It will, it'll kind of make you be like, wow, I don't understand. I really don't understand. I mean, and sometimes it even takes having to see these drastic, drastic situation sometimes for some and for some people that's what they need right like it's a visual thing like you can't just hear it you need to see it for yourself it shouldn't it really shouldn't have to be like that you really shouldn't need to see it for yourself to have compassion but you know some people need to (laughs) it is it is what it is i guess (laughs) (laughs) and so sometimes it it is that like people don't realize until they travel to another country or maybe Mm. you know last last year right before like literally i think a week or two before the lockdown, we went to the Navajo reservation mm. and our, our friend, a re- really good friend lives there and seeing how, like what little resources they have and, and their, and this is their land. Mm-hmm. We don't, this land isn't even ours and they yeah. have nothing. Well, they don't have nothing, mm-hmm. but they barely have anything. They barely yeah. have even the bare minimum to survive. It's it's seeing these things and kind of confronting these realities and continuing to do the work to unlearn your biases, what you've internalized in terms of class and race and all that stuff, like all of it, like that, that will help all of us, especially whether on a business mindset or not, realize that there's more than enough and mm-hmm. that like competition is fabricated by capitalism yeah so yeah there's not like there's not many like entrepreneur of like entrepreneurs of color right like i i think i think there i think there's more than we think but there's not as many right like um like the culture of entrepreneurship the culture this culture of like make your build your own thing is like dominated by like a a ton of like white bros yeah white (laughs) broish white guys right and even like white women are trying to carve out that space but like it's it really it's like the Gwyneth Paltrow's or whatever, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, like, we have, like, millennials. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, you're a millennial because yeah, you graduated a year. Yeah, you're a millennial. Uh, it's like, we have millennials like us and uh, entrepreneurs of color are trying to, like, engage in this space. And we have all of this culture and background and difference. And even you, I didn't even know you were um, uh, first, uh, first gen. I didn't know you were um, a child of immigrants. Shout out there. So I, I think that to have, like, that experience is, like, so important in this spaces. Mm-hmm. And why these things have not changed and shifted is because, like, we keep recycling these same folks mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in those in these in these um, in these spaces. And I, I'm I have been thinking, and, and particularly right before I got on, because I I would love to like hear your thoughts on this. For me, like now, like wanting to be an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. like I've been doing this, but now, like I'm going to do my own thing as a full time job. It's just like it's really intimidating to a yeah. certain extent because like there ain't nobody that I could look to or have like a lot of like teachers. So it's a lot of like relying on one another and piecemealing stuff together mm-hmm. and hustling and grinding. Mm-hmm. And your work with Empowered of Color, what have you seen for entrepreneurs? And, and do you feel like this is kind of like a, a pattern that you're witnessing? Yes, it is a pattern that I'm witnessing. That's actually why Empowered in Color started to begin with. When you said, mm. um, you know, there's more entrepreneurs of color than we think. But there's still not that many. That was exactly the um, catalyst that led to me starting Empowered in Color. Obviously, there was all these experiences that I talked about earlier 
that mm-hmm. that influenced empowered in color but that that exact thing that you're saying i i like i said i've been in i've been in this online business space for 8 years and in that time i noticed that like at these conferences and at in all these webinars and you see the Marie Forleo's you see like all these speakers and they're all white mm-hmm. and i was in this group it was run by a black woman and um, it was diverse. It, it had like everybody, but of course, naturally, there was going to be a lot of people of color in this group because they're going to naturally gravitate to her. Mm-hmm. And in that group, I like realized, wow, um, this is actually something that I can do. Like, because it had up until that point, it was kind of like a side hustle for me. Doing this thing was like a side hustle mm-hmm. and like a passion project. But sitting in her group and seeing like, wow, like all these people are like, not all of these, but a lot of these people are not white and they're entrepreneurs and they're doing it despite whatever their circumstances are. They're like making it, making bank, you know, helping people, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I can do this too, but we need to highlight these people. Like why aren't these people on all of the biggest stages? Why aren't these people getting um, all these the big interviews, why aren't they getting the magazine covers? I don't know the the features and stuff like that. Like, why aren't we Mm -hmm. hearing about them? And initially empowered in color was really meant to be a place for people of color to find representation in entrepreneurship. Mm. It's shifted Mm -hmm. beyond more than just like business owners, so to speak, but that's what it started it as. And that's, and that's how we're always going to lean because that that's what interested me and what caused me to start it. And and I've noticed in these spaces, like, and I've done research and I've asked people, like, what are, what are, what do you need the most as an entrepreneur of color? Mm-hmm. And the top three things people need are capital, obviously, yep, um, and mentorship. And I can't remember the last one, but definitely <laughs> capital and mentorship were the top two and i think maybe community something like that but okay um i mean that would make that would still make sense though yeah 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 so we just we need we need these things we need these resources we need to be we need to be friends with people who will say our names in the rooms we're not in because society isn't really going to let us in if we just try to go through the front door Mm -hmm. and and that's another pillar of empowering color that i that's really important to me too is connection because almost my entire career is built off of people that I knew. And that's because Mm. some, at some point, I don't know if it was in high, like late high school, early college, but at some point in, in that time of my life, someone said it's all about who, you know, in terms of like getting like the best job or whatever. And that stayed with me. So I made sure that wherever I go, I'm always talking to people I'm always connecting with people, always not afraid to talk about what I'm working on, what I want to do, where I want to go. Even if um, it's intimidating, I talk to my Lyft driver. Well, obviously, I'm not riding in any Lyfts right now because of COVID. But like, you know, before everything, I was talking to my Lyft drivers. I would talk to people that I meet at events. I would just walk up to people. You know, I I meet people on social media. A lot of my best collaborations best collaborators and business friends are like people i met on social media um Mm. and stuff like that but i feel like a lot of people of color are not taking advantage of that because we're not really taught that explicitly Mm -hmm. um even people that go to college even 
people of color that are college educated might not still be thinking about that. Like they're just thinking about how to get the job. And that's because that's what our families tell us, right? Because they didn't know any better either. They yeah. they're, they just think about survival and survival means you get a stable job. Yeah, that's it. Yep. And even if you do get a stable job, we're not told that we need to be aggressive in terms of where if we want to get to where we want to go, if you want to be at the top, if you want to climb the corporate ladder or whatever, if you want to get a raise, you need to ask for it. Yeah. Um, in some cases, demanded. Yeah. In some cases, demanded <laughs> or how yeah. it's okay to leave a job if if, yeah. if you like are not happy, um, if it's not fulfilling for you, if it's toxic for you, if it's if it's not safe for you, um, yep. you know, like it, it makes me sad. Like my old job, there's these Filipino uncles that work there that have been there for like 10, 15 plus years. And they always say mm-hmm. like, I keep getting passed up for promotions, but it's okay. I'm just going to keep working hard with my head down and maybe one day that I'll get a promotion. And it's like, no, like it made me yeah. so sad when they, when they told me that. Yeah. Because that's how a lot of people in our communities think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's another thing that we try to do is to help people of color, like take advantage of the resources they have around them and help connect them because it is about who, you know, it's an unfortunate thing. Like I remember one time I got like some, I don't remember what it was. I've, I've done a lot of random jobs and gigs and stuff. Some really cool, some really like weird, um, and and one time I I got a gig and, and my husband Daryl was like, man, so it's really about who you know, huh? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, so it doesn't matter even if I'm qualified, if I don't know anybody, I'm not going to get there. And I said, unfortunately, that's likely going to be the case. And he was like, well. That really, really sucks. And I'm like, I know. Yeah. I know. Like, yeah. And we don't realize that until, until like, you see a situation happen right in front of you and you're like, wow. So that is really how it is. And you're, and you talk, and you're hitting on something that, like, I'm, I'm going to initiate into my own coaching practices. Like, you don't even understand the capital that, like, as per, in particular communities of color have that bring to the table. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, like, we get caught in the mindset of, like, damn, I didn't go to like a high performing mm-hmm. high school and mm-hmm. I, I went to this college. Mm-hmm. But it's like, first of all, it's like some of the, some of the students that I work with are multilingual. You've been, mm-hmm. you know, being an interpreter since you were like four years yeah. old. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. that is a humongous skill. Yeah. You, some people have been hustling and started their own businesses, you know, technically of like I gathered cans and mowed lawns and stuff like that. You know how to like manage your money. You know how to do. So there's all these different skills that we were unfortunately like forced to learn and know at an early age and grind and hustle that some of these other people who have a little bit more, in some cases, a lot more privilege when it comes to like selling yourself and, and like a job or even like if you decide to go and do your own thing, you know what I'm saying? You can do it. Like yeah. it is so, so, so possible. All right, so I want to introduce y'all to a theory developed by Dr. Tara Yoso out of the University of California, Riverside, called Community Cultural Wealth. Now, this theory is birthed out of the critical race theory, and I know that there is a big and unnecessary debate going on right now about CRT. I'm not going to go into it, but I will say like a lot of people that are arguing against it are being loud and wrong. I'm going to take some time at another pod to dive into it um, because I want to give that the necessary time it needs. But anyways, what is community culture wealth? 
Community cultural wealth is a theory that focuses on and learns from the array of cultural knowledge, skills, abilities, and contacts possessed by socially marginalized groups that often go unrecognized and unacknowledged. Now, this theory is applied predominantly in the education system. However, the forms of cultural capital outlined in this theory still ring true outside of just the sphere of education. Okay, so why am I bringing this up? Well, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because Dr. Yoso does something brilliant here. She's saying that there is a wealth of knowledge for these socially marginalized groups that just it just goes unrecognized or, or, or unacknowledged um, because it just seems like, oh, you can't use that here. Well, no, you can use it here. It just looks differently. And so how can these socially marginalized communities utilize those experiences, those skills that they learned way back in the day because they had to in these new spheres, right? That's all she's saying here, and that's all I was um, implying. I think for myself, I'm just now like stepping into that. Mm -hmm. I think for for the longest time, like me and Lindsay have been together what six, seven years, four or five out of, the, of those years, she's like, Jonathan, you can't you can't work for other people. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like like you need to start your own thing because you cannot work for other people. Because mm -hmm. like I keep rubbing up against these things, and I'm like, that's not I don't wanna, like doesn't make that's any sense. Like too. why are we doing that's this? Me too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, um, but I've never, I have never been, I've always been about side hustles. I've mm -hmm. never been about my hustle. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And I've, and one of the things I've, I've started to say is like, I have shared my ideas and dreams with other people, hoping that they believe in the thing mm -hmm. that I believe in, mm -hmm. hoping for their belief yeah, in me, yeah, right? Yeah. Instead of believing in my own dream, yeah. right? Instead of believing in the things that I am able to do and capable of doing. And like, I just had that realization today. And like, that's when I made the decision mm -hmm. of like, yo, like, I'm not going to wait a month, two months to quit and start my own thing. Like, I need to quit like ASAP. Yes. Like, I'm writing the letter. <laughs> I'm, I need to quit. Because like, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't And And I'll, I'll say this. Yes, I have. I am not going to ignore the fact that I have privilege that yeah. uh, me and Lens have been able to save and put money away to make this possible. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so I recognize that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think as encouragement for... As me and you were talking, I just want to encourage the folks that are listening, like, you know, you do not deserve to be treated less than what your value is. Yeah. And, like, I was talking to somebody earlier this week. You need to not only, like, look at your value based off of, like, education and work experience. Mm -hmm. Like, honestly, take some time, calculate all of that together. Mm -hmm. And what is that? What do you deserve? And are you not only being paid that because your value isn't just necessarily connected to a number, mm -hmm. Does the company match your values? Mm -hmm, Does, mm -hmm. you know, like, are you making enough to, to live the way that you want to live? Um, are you working the hours that you want at work? Mm -hmm. All of these, all these into consideration, like those are the values. And do they, do they align up to what you, what you're wanting? And like, for me, they don't like yeah. I'm working, I'm quote unquote serving people that like literally do not care about me. Yeah. Like they don't give two shits about me, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so, or, or my direct report. So I'm just like, yo, I don't need to do this. I don't need to take this. So no, I, that was just really resonating with me. And I, yeah, it's, it is encouraging to me to hear you like speak about that and talk about like that experience and really push back against the status quo. It's hard, but you got to do it, right? Like yeah. I'm very much a person that I don't like to ever question what if, because mm -hmm. I, I'm an overthinker. I, I'm in my head all the time. So I need to just do it or else I'm not going to question it. And um, I literally, my what motivates me is to think like a mediocre white man. 
Yeah. <laughs> no, I, and I'm I'm like I'm I'm really dead serious. I, yeah. It's funny because it is, but it's yeah. very unfortunately true. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Because no. like I don't know, I saw it on Twitter once a few years ago, and I was like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense, and it clicked, mm-hmm. and so I started thinking more like that. When I when imposter syndrome creeps in, I tell myself, nope, nope. What would this What would this mediocre white guy do? Oh, he yeah. would just ask for it. <laughs> Oh, he would just say yeah. it. Oh, he would just do it. He would apply for it anyway. He yeah. would give them that number. He would say, nope, these are my rates, you know? Yeah. So, and the good thing no, about... No, damn well he don't deserve it. No, <laughs> damn well he don't deserve it. <laughs> yes, unfortunately. But in his mind, he does because everything in the society is built around him. Yes. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know, uh, I know, I know. Well, um, well, I want to kind of like lean uh, a little bit more into that because you mentioned earlier about like just this value of social justice work mm-hmm. that is married to imp- empowered in color. Yeah. I'm curious, like, where does this drive for, like, even social justice come from? So the burn for social justice, I think, again, the the very core of it, like I said earlier, you could see it in me from a really young age. Um, but what really propelled it forward and and really made me feel like I can't be apathetic. I can't just live my own life and and like chill and like do whatever and not care was when I went to college. Mm -hmm. That was the most defining experience for me. And and that's also where I happened to meet you. (laughs) And um, I'll say something about, about that later, but I, it was going, it was going to college. I grew Mm -hmm. up around people who looked like me. I mm-hmm. knew that in America I was considered a minority, but I never knew what that actually was like. The closest was when I would go to summer camp with the YMCA. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and even then, the only reason I could afford, like, because these camps are expensive. They're not cheap. The only reason no, they are not. that my mom could even afford for my sister and I to go is that my seventh grade English teacher, a white man, um, who taught obviously in a community of color, but he was very much aware of like how um, kids in our community don't get to experience a lot of these things. He mm-hmm. would have like other community members through the YMCA like sponsor us, whether with mm-hmm. a full mm-hmm. scholarship or partial or something. And like, and so that's how I would go. And, and I would feel so isolated. I felt like I could not relate to anybody. And and that was only for a week. And that was it. And then going to college where I had to live with these people and to everybody around me, I was like my habits were so weird. I ate mm. weird food. I did weird things. I spoke funny. Everyone assumed that I was a foreigner. Mm. Something I never had to question before in my life. I wow. knew... I knew I was American, but I never said that I was American because it was understood because everyone around me was the same as me. We were all born here and our parents came here so we can have a better Mm -hmm. life. So in college, when everyone started to question me be like me actually being from here, it really, really messed me up because I was like, Mm. what the hell? Yeah, seriously. (laughs) And people commenting on my English and saying that I had an accent. I'm like... Um, I can show you a Filipino accent, and this is not it. Yeah, and that's a, maybe an L.A. accent. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and, and even with that, too, when I would tell people, like, like where, where are you from? I'm like, oh, 
I'm from Carson. Some people would think Carson City, Nevada. I'm like, no. I'm from, you know, I'm just from Long Beach. And they're like, what? Yeah. I'm like, it borders Compton. And they're like, oh. And they're like, oh, you sound ghetto. I'm like, what? What the? <laughs> Back home, I'm the white girl. What you talk? What are you yeah. talking about? Like, <laughs> you know, so it was just like college. It was really college because I, mm. w- I was confronted with my race all the time. Not that mm. like I didn't think about it in high school and, 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 and as a child. Like, you know, as a kid, when you grow up in a community of color, um, that's mixed with all different kinds of races. Colorblind doesn't exist. We know, like, yeah. oh, you're black. Oh, you're Samoan. Oh, you're you're Filipino. Okay, like, you know, that's it. You know, it's not it's not this weird. Oh, I'm stepping on any toes. I'm tiptoeing. You know, like walking on eggshells. Yeah. No, it's just it is what it is. Yeah. You know, and and then going to college and everyone was like, kind of like, I'm like, what are you doing? Like, you know, it, yeah, you can just this? say it. <laughs> or yeah. I don't know, like. It was just so normal to me. And mm-hmm. and people had no idea what to do with it. And on top of that, as an Asian American woman, I subverted all everyone's expectations of what an Asian American woman was. Because mm. for most people that I met in college, again, it usually wasn't people of color. It was mostly white my white peers in college. Mm-hmm. You know, their impressions of Asian people, especially Asian women, were either you were quote unquote whitewashed. So you weren't, you didn't talk, you didn't speak the language, you weren't close mm. to your culture, you didn't talk about it at all. You didn't practice any traditions, nothing. Or you were an immigrant, you you came here, you literally came here and and can't and have an accent and you and English wasn't your first language and stuff like that. Um, and I was neither of those. I was truly a blend. I was tr- I truly grew up in a an, in a Filipino American household a filipino american experience it was a combination mm-hmm. of both um and on top of that a lot of people assumptions of asian people were that we would not rock the boat we wouldn't say anything and mm-hmm. that i was an asian woman there's no way she's gonna say like a lot of people would show their racist asses to me and i'm yep, just like yep. and i like comment back and they're just like oh, 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 like they don't know what to do <laughs> and yeah and then i think that kind of Made, that made people really uncomfortable around me. And, and I felt mm. really isolated in college as a result. Mm. I felt really isolated. Oh, my gosh. I hope I don't cry. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But like, it's all good it, if you do. Yeah. It was really shitty. Yeah. The people that I still talk to from college, other than my one white best friend and Lindsay, of course. <laughs> Not that yeah. I, I didn't go to college with her, but I feel like I did. But <laughs> yeah. um, are like people of color. I don't talk to any of my white peers mm. because I cannot, I cannot be around them. I don't feel comfortable. I never. It's traumatic. It's traumatic. It is. It really, it's traumatic. Really yeah. is. Like, mm-hmm. you know, most, the people I got along with the most were the black and Latino folks on campus. Mm-hmm. My last semester of college, all my roommates were black. <laughs> I had all black. Yeah. I had all black roommates, and mm-hmm. I felt so comfortable with that. That wasn't weird to me. Yeah. So it was just yeah. Co- long story short, <laughs> college yeah. was really the determining factor, and you know I, I, and this is how you and I met. We met because I, I uh, our involvement with the diverse the Department of Diversity and Inclusion. I don't remember what it's called now, but you know, that department in college, right? And mm-hmm. and finding that department just made me feel so at home. Yeah. It made me feel so safe 
because these people got me. They understood mm -hmm. what it was like to grow up in a place where sometimes you'll wake up and hear gunshots in the middle of the night, you know? And yeah. that's like <laughs> a thing, you know? I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, it, that's just what it is. Or yeah. that you know not to go to this area because, you know, people be making some sketchy deals over there. Mm -hmm. um, or that you couldn't always afford to go do these activities. You couldn't afford to go to like homecoming all the time or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Just things like that. Or relating to the fact that like our parents would be like, you can't wear shoes in the house. You know, like <laughs> like little things. Like every, I swear, I felt like an alien in school sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> like I grew up here. I don't know what was so weird about my upbringing, but that, that's really what propelled me into social justice because mm. of all the microaggressions all mm. of the politeness people thinking that they were absolved from racism because their best friend was black because their you know their stepmom is asian because mm. they like korean barbecue because yeah. they dated a black person before yeah whatever it asian, is whatever. like or thing yeah. like Oh, we're all made in the image of God. It's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, that can even lead into like a whole other thing. Like even changing my view of Christianity too. like mm -hmm. growing up really conservative, growing up really conservative in a Filipino church. And that's a whole other thing that's steeped in like colonial, that's really steeped in colonialism and self-hate. Mm. Um, and when I went to college, my view of Christianity changed in, in huge part, thanks to my black peers because mm. seeing how my black peers obviously like love God and whatever, but like they were still being treated the way they were treated. But it's like you're supposed to call these people your brother and sister in Christ, but mm -hmm. yet you're saying these kinds of things about them or or like their communities and stuff. Like how can you do that? And yep. I learned a lot from my black peers about what it really means to be a Christian and like really shifting my mindset from – how I grew up and how I was raised as a result of colonialism and all that. Yeah. And, and shifting, like, you know, you think of, I would tell people, you know, people of color can be Christians too. But for some reason, when race gets brought up in the church, everything about Jesus gets thrown out the window, right? Mm -hmm. Like they'll talk about Jesus throughout all these Bible verses. But when you talk about a marginalized person's experience in the church, that's, that goes out by the wayside. And that has also yeah. contributed to my social justice too because I I believe that the God that we serve, that I love, isn't the God that America worships. <laughs> mm, mm. You know, it's, it's very yeah. different from that. And I believe that the Jesus that I know would be very deeply rooted in social justice, you know, and things like that. So... I mean, even that, even all of that played a really big role, too, because I believe that even for me, like, my faith does drive me to social justice. You know, you hear a lot of white Christians talk about why they're not into, they're into the everything that's the opposite of social justice, which sounds very, that doesn't sound right when you hear it like that. But, like, mm. it's like, don't you know who your God is? Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it, it's just, it's really crazy to me how people kind of twist these things and people will say we're twisting things too but it it all comes down to like love and compassion 
really. Mm-hmm. At, if you want to break it down to like what it really is at the core of it, it's love and compassion. That's why yeah. I do what I do. Anything else is not that. You touched on it a few times, and I, I do want to provide space for this, and I know um, I've already kept you for a good amount of time, That's so I don't okay. want to. That's okay. <laughs> I can talk over. We need to catch up awesome. anyway. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but I th- I think what we've seen, and, and I saw you, again, really vocal even last year, and I, and I know it wasn't because of the moment with the uprisings and the protests um, surrounding um, police brutality and like this resurgence and everything like that in the shadow of that all that with the attention that black lives matter was mm-hmm, getting like mm-hmm. there was this, this loss of attention that was happening for the asian american community mm-hmm. the asian community in, in the u.s and so i know for me like i didn't realize any of these things were like on the rise because mm-hmm. it just wasn't talked about yeah, until yeah. like within the last month month and a half mm-hmm. for you how kind of like tried to hold both of those things in tension being on solidarity solidarity with the black community but also trying to like care for yourself. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. It's been a really interesting year for me in terms of like kind of processing all of that. And especially in the last couple of weeks, the last couple of mm. weeks is when it hit me the hardest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can briefly touch on that in a bit, but it's been conflicting for me, quite honestly. Yeah. Um, just because of all the intersections of identities and nuances and whatnot that kind of go into all of these things, which that's a whole other thing. But for me personally, um, I've kind of just been wrestling with how to talk about everything happening with the Asian community. Mm. Because a lot of times when... Asian activists or Asian people in general talk about the anti-Asian hate crimes, it's very anti-Black. And for me, that's something that I have done a lot of work over the years to really unlearn in the anti-Blackness that has been embedded and ingrained into my head, right? Because Mm. of white supremacy, because of colonialism, Because when my Mm -hmm. parents came to America, they're fed that narrative, right? When immigrants come here, they're fed that narrative that black people are bad. And, Mm -hmm. you know, these, you know, they've never seen a black person in person before, so they don't know. So they're just going to believe it. Mm -hmm. And, And they pass that on to us. So for me, like, I've been so conflicted. And at the same time, too, even with everything happening in the Asian community, it's it's such a weird dynamic because Mm. most of the stuff happening in the like the hate crimes happening against asians most of it has been against east asian people or people who look like they're east asian not all Mm. but most of it because you know of the association with china and in the asian community it's weird because we already always are talking about east asians (laughs) (laughs) Um, so it's just I'm not saying that they obviously no one deserves it but it's just like a really weird thing to navigate for me as an Asian woman I haven't I've been very blessed to not have had to deal with any of these horrible things that a lot of these other people are dealing with because Mm -hmm. I don't I don't look I don't look East Asian Mm -hmm. you know depending on the context I'm in I've had people mistake me for being native or being Latina Mm -hmm. You know, like, so I, my experience is different from theirs. So it's been hard. But what happened with the shooting in Atlanta really hit me 
because it it really triggered me because of just the ways that white men feel entitled to Asian women, the stereotypes of us being uh, submissive and quiet and also mm-hmm. just being like these exotic creatures, like we're not human, you know, and, and, and having experienced that, obviously not like violence, but having experienced that fet- fet- fetishization from white men as well where mm-hmm. i'm you know they'll just start talking to be talking to me about their their sex lives with their filipino mm. ex-girlfriend i'm like i don't know you why are you telling me this what does this have to do with anything this isn't you know or people talking about how beautiful and sexy we are or mm. just saying oh i i've been to the philippines beautiful women like always talking about the women yeah. And it's just really disturbing. Yep. It's really disturbing. So that really triggered me in that sense. And so I really had to take a lot of time. I really had to uh, step away from like the news and everything mm-hmm. because it was just too much for me. And I'm normally not someone who needs to do that necessarily, but I just had to. I couldn't like read the news. I couldn't even, I couldn't do anything with that. Um, and then the other end of that, a lot of, like I was saying earlier, a lot of Asian activists, they're being really anti-black in how they're talking about it. So that's also been really conflicting for me because they're saying things like, why aren't, why aren't black people standing up for us the way that like, the way that everyone was standing up for them during BLM or, or people like posting yellow squares. I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) you know, just like doing all these, there was this, there's this other Asian woman who she danced to her song "I Can't Breathe" as like a self-expression thing, and and, and the funny thing is that her is Asian, <laughs> um, so that's an interesting thing. But it was like, girl, no, no, please do not yeah. be, please do not be trying to say I can't breathe. We're dying, but but please, please don't do that. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> it was like it was just like really cringy, and I had to say something about it. Because our mm. community does have a history of being very anti-black. Mm. And as someone who is very conscious of that, I was just trying to tell people, like, we can bring awareness to our plight without stealing. It's kind of like back to what we were saying about entrepreneurship in the beginning, right? Yes, like, yes, yes. There's enough for everybody. Like, yeah. we can care about multiple things at once, And we don't need to push black people out of, not the spotlight, but you know what I mean? Like, we don't need to push black people out of the way in order to get people to care about us. Yeah, yeah. And what's happening to our elders and and other people, like, it doesn't have to be like that. And and even talking about, uh, I think, like, in January and February, when a lot of these things were happening to when news stations started reporting about it more and a lot of Asians mm. were like, no, we need more policing. We need more police. And, and people were like, no, we don't need more policing. Yeah. And, no, it's going to make it worse. Um, yeah. And I think it was like end of February or, or, or no, I think it was like in February, like Angelo Quinto, he's Filipino. He mm-hmm. was shot by the police. He was unarmed. He had his hands up and he was shot by the police. Mm. Okay. I should have had a trigger warning at the beginning of the episode. I apologize for that. Um, but I did want to correct uh, Chriselle here. Uh, she was referring to another incident involving another man that was shot and killed by the police. The incident surrounding Angelo Quinto actually goes like this. 
So according to the family members, that on December 23rd, at around 11 p.m., Angelo Quinto was agitated um, and grabbed his mother and sister and began hugging them tightly around their heads and shoulders, and this scared them. Isabella Collins, Angelo's sister, called the police uh, because she was scared that Angela was going to hurt her mother. And according to a private investigator who was hired by the family's attorneys, they said that when the police arrived, Quinto's mother was on the floor embracing her son. And according to the family, again, police then flipped over Quinto and then pinned him down on his stomach. While one officer held his legs, the other knelt on his neck. And then at this point, Quinto's mother started to record the incident. Um, she didn't get the beginning of the incident. She only was able to record um, several minutes into it. But uh, the family does say that the officer was on his neck for about five minutes, at which point Quinto became unresponsive. Officers called the ambulance, and then Quinto was transported to nearby hospital, but he never regained consciousness, and he unfortunately died uh, three days later. So those are the context behind this case. And, and what's extra about this and, and what's really chilling about this is that this incident, this particular incident, happened seven months after the killing of George Floyd. And the connection between the two is just like really, uh, it's a lot. This is why Black Lives Matter affects all of us. Mm. Because our freedom is all tied together. We're yeah. all meant to be like fighting for each other. And if you look at history, that has been the case for us. I use a lot of examples with Filipino Americans because that's just my experience. Obviously, like I'm Filipino myself, but like if you look in history, when the Filipino American War was happening, when Filipinos were trying to fight for their independence, black soldiers defected to the Philippines so that they mm. could help us because they believe like this isn't right. Philippines should not be under American rule. You yeah. know, um, in in the Bay Area, when there, I think is the Watsonville riot or something like that. Like there was riots happening in Manila Town by white men. Mm -hmm. Black Panther stepped in to help. Yeah. You know, like Asian Americans marched alongside civil rights leaders during the civil rights movement. There's just so many examples throughout history and white supremacy. The job of white supremacy is to make sure that we're fighting each other so that they can just kind of yep. sit back and chill and maintain the status quo. So it's really hard because it's just so nuanced. Like I understand how hurt people are, but people need mm -hmm. to understand that just because there happens to be a black person that does commit one of these atrocious crimes, the reason why he did that is because of white supremacy. A black yeah. person hating an Asian person is because white supremacy told us to hate Asian people. It, it's like all tied together. We all are meant to be in community with each other and help each other because, again, it's like there's so many examples that show why our freedoms are all tied together. So it's been like like if we're being really honest and kind of shortening that, shortening all of that into like <laughs> a sentence or two, it's just... It's been really difficult because it's been so conflicting for me. Mm, Not yeah. because I don't want to advocate for my community, mm -hmm. but the ways in which the loudest people in my community are advocating for ourselves, it's in a very problematic way that's not productive. Mm. Not productive yeah. for the revolution. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, and I I think too, uh, and just like me, I, I know I for me as a black person, I never want to be like the spokesperson for my race. Mm -hmm. So similarly, I don't want you to be the spokesperson, spokesperson for you know all Filipino American <laughs> Filipino Americans. You know what I'm saying? But 
no, I, um, yeah, I just noticed like the outspokenness. And I, the funny thing is, is like, I've started to hear that a little bit mm -hmm. um, more recently that like there are some voices that are coming at black people or pointing the finger at black people or like there's like these news posts from like the Washington Post mm -hmm. even posted something like what black Americans can do to like be in solidarity. Mm -hmm. Well, hold on. Let's like <laughs> what? Let's like let's actually who looked at this and said this. You know what? Let's print it. That's good. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, you know, um, you, and you hit it on the head. It's like white supremacy wants all of us to like continue to point the finger at each other. And not like dismantle the status quo, mm -hmm. and and even and that goes for like white people too that get caught up in white supremacy. Yeah. Like white supremacy is not just like it is an ideology, it is a system, it is a, this overarching thing that water. has been embedded. Yes, it's the water, it is the water. that we're drinking. <laughs> yes, and so like we have to acknowledge that this is what we are in, and to dismantle it, we have it takes absolutely all of us to get out of this this barrel like we yeah. can't just be crabs in a barrel yeah. and fighting mm -hmm. each other mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying and so quite honest like there was a couple times this week where i'm i'm just like yo like but we're still fighting this thing for like black folks and i'm like hold on jonathan like yo like it is completely possible to like hold these things in tension and to like mourn with those who mm -hmm. mourn and to celebrate with those who celebrate yeah. like yes there's still work to be done in the black community and for black lives and for criminal justice reform and all these different things but like there is a again a long history uh, for our Asian brothers and sisters that like they 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 need they need justice too. Justice needs to be had for them as well. And so it's just like dismantling all of these things. So I'm still obviously just to be fully transparent, like like I'm consistently dismantling. We yeah. all have to dismantle yeah. these ideas that we've arrived or made it or like just because we drop a post or something like that and there's some, some profound words in there that like, no, all of us are still working. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so like how do we together this rainbow coalition of people of all races ethnicities colors all this creeds whatever dismantle the system that consistently wants to maintain the status mm -hmm. quo yeah i don't know and i feel like conversations like this helps with that mm -hmm. um i think empowered in color helps with that and i'm really excited because you know I, I would love for a real talk with duma and then like whatever coaching and consulting stuff that i do like love to partner more with you because I, I feel like there's a lot of cool stuff that we can shake up the world yeah. with. Oh my um, gosh, so much, so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would love to end it on this question because I'm really curious, like being an entrepreneur, self-employed, it can be grueling and grinding work. Um, what motivates you to continue to do the work that you do, not only being an entrepreneur, self-employed, but also work that's like deeply tied to like core values of who you are, who Chrisell is, like what motivates you to continue going? Seeing small wins. <laughs> and, and when I say yeah. small wins, I think it's just when people have a breakthrough and people say, oh, that makes sense. It's when people r tell me that like they what I like, I was able to explain something in a way to them that they couldn't, un like, that they can now understand that they couldn't before. Mm. It's seeing mm -hmm. other people of color, like, doing the damn thing and just getting it right. Like, I love it. A good friend of mine, she is one of the, like, most resourceful people I know. She's, like, so good at what she does with tech and operations and stuff. And, she was doing a lot of client work and I was like, girl, you can get paid to coach people and like have programs and stuff. And now she's doing it. And like, I, I saw, yes. I literally watched the shift happen on like Instagram, like 
when she was like, oh, I made I made these digital products and like they weren't really like selling. And then suddenly she just started getting all these sales and now she's making that passive income, you know, and like exactly. paying down yes. her debt. She's helping her parents, you know, like all these things like like seeing other people getting to do that. It it gives me so much joy, like mm. see and even seeing people just being excited to fight for justice that that keeps me going so right now i'm doing this social justice entrepreneurship program with cal state long beach and yesterday we had a session where we were talking about pretty much ownership like how can we how can we have a business like social enterprise like how can we have a business where the workers where the community members where everybody involved not just the people who own the business which would be us in this case Mm-hmm. We're not the only ones succeeding and thriving and getting rich, you know, like yeah. um, that they're like having a business model where we can fight injustice. And everyone was so excited, like talking about like, yeah, we're going to dismantle capitalism and like yeah. the patriarchy <laughs> and like everything. And it was just so funny, but it was so beautiful. Mm. Like it made me feel like, oh, my gosh, these are my people, people yeah, yeah. who want to you know, run a business. Yeah. And, and let's, let's make some money, but like, we're going to care about people. And that sounds so stupid to say it like that. Right. It's like, it shouldn't need to be said, but we can make a profit and not exploit people in the process and yes. not exploit the planet and our resources in the process. Yeah. Like you would think that's common sense, but it's not because look at all the, the top companies in the world, mm-hmm. you know, so seeing things like that, like these little breakthroughs and these wins, like it, it really keeps me going. Truly. That's awesome. That's so great. Um, well, fam, well, go ahead and get your plug in. Uh, <laughs> where can people find Empower, Empowered in Color? Um, how can they, you know, learn more about you, what you're doing? Um, I would love, 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 love for folks that are listening right now to get connected with you or to be able to pass off um, your stuff as a resource for folks. Yeah, so you can find us at empoweredincolor.co um, on Instagram. We're at empoweredincolor. If you want to see more of my hot takes and <laughs> talk more openly and bluntly about like everything from social justice to politics and everything in between, um, you can find me at Chriselle, K-R-I-S-E-L-L-E-M-G. Uh, um, on Instagram and Twitter and listen to the Empowered in Color podcast. Subscribe. Let's um, go. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. And leave a review. Yes. Leave, leave a, a review, review too. <laughs> um, subscribe to our newsletter. Um, for any people of color who are listening who have a business and are starting or like in the early stages of their business or maybe are interested in starting one, um, by the end of 2021, we plan to launch our equity fund where we will get to give micro grants to aspiring and early stage entrepreneurs of color because I get it. Capital will be a real big reason to stop people. And as much as possible, I don't want that to be a reason that stops people from going for what they want. Can follow us to stay tuned for that. <laughs> That's dope. I love it, and uh, I would love to be involved any way I can to help out with that. Um, but thank you so much, Chriselle, for joining me. This has been so fun. Oh my gosh, yeah, this has been great. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. <laughs> Absolutely.
there is this phenomenon that I would say most entrepreneurs experience. Um, and it's this roller coaster of emotions. You know, some days, maybe weeks you're riding high, like you're feeling good, great intro calls, great leads, a lot of leads. Um, and then there's other days or even weeks where it's like extremely low, where like there's no calls, there's no leads. Um, and even the calls and leads you had, they don't go anywhere. And I'm not gonna lie to y'all, like even in the first few months that I've been doing this with my own business, like I've already felt like all of the range of emotions is like hard. Um, I've even felt it with the podcast. Like I've experienced the same like feeling with the podcast creating this thing. Um, but after listening to this conversation with me and Chriselle, like I'm encouraged, you know, like I'm not alone. I'm not by myself. I'm not the only one that's going through this. And I'm even reminded of my why. The reason that I decided to start my own shit wasn't because um, I was tired of working for other people. Well, that that's a part of the reason. It wasn't the only reason. Um, but it was because I wanted my own agency. I wanted agency over, you know, who I worked with and, and the things that I made and, and the products that I produced and created and, and worked really, really fucking hard on to ultimately be mine. And I, I wanted to have the choice to be able to set my own prices and provide access to coaching and consulting to those who wouldn't ordinarily like even think about it or even um, think that they could afford it, right? And not only that, but I to show, like Chriselle shared, that it is completely possible to care deeply about the people you work with and also provide a level of service and value to clients where it's a win-win. And I'm not talking about like, you know, just this transactional idea of what capitalism is right now, where like, oh, just because you pay me, I got what I wanted. And just because, you know, you got your service or your product, you got what you wanted. Nah, I'm talking about like, what if, and like, go with me here, like, what if each client that I work with or anybody works with, like they receive the best care, the best service, the best value, the best product or whatever, not because they were paying me a lot of money or even paying me at all, but because they were human, right? And that's why I think it's like so important that we build our own tables to go beyond like this regular scope of what we think business is supposed to be. Um, because obviously the way that business is going right now and the way that how our system goes right now is not working for everybody. Anyways, I'm encouraged again because there's other like-minded folks out there. I really, really enjoyed this conversation with Chriselle and I actually was really, um, you know, moved. I was listening, editing back and um, editing back this podcast. And I'm like, you know what? I got to do something. I got to put my money where my mouth is. So this is what I want to do. I want to um, lead a group coaching cohort for RTWD listeners because I know if I was encouraged, I know that there's other people that were feeling something similar. So what does this look like? It looks like four, one and a half to two hour um, group coaching sessions over the course of um, three months with you and along with like three or four other folks digging into a specific goal, idea, plan. And in this group, we are gonna create a supportive and collaborative environment focused on results and action. So each time you leave our, our sessions together, you're gonna to have action steps and you're gonna report back to the group after that. So together we're gonna to craft this action-packed plan to guide each person towards their goal. And by the end of that time, you either will have completed your goal or made significant strides towards completing your goal. And if that interests you, or you know someone who might be interested or might be uh, into this thing, first thing you wanna do is forward them this episode. 
And then both of y'all head over to commonculturecc.com. I also have a link to the website down below. And when you contact me, make sure in the inquiry form that you include this episode title. And then all RTWD listeners will get an exclusive discount working with me. So I really like having my own business because I get to do dope shit like that. That's really cool that I get to just, I thought about this and I was like, I want to just give it out to my RTW, RTWD listeners. So there it is. I want to give an additional shout out to Chriselle again for coming on the pod. Go check her stuff out, y'all. It's really, really cool. Subscribe to her newsletter, all that stuff. Follow her on Instagram. She drops some really great stuff. Empowered in color. Um, I provided all of her info in the show notes. Check that out. All right. Well, okay, y'all. It is great to be back. I missed y'all. Um, don't forget to join the real fam at the Patreon page. A link for that is also in the show notes. I got another great episode coming up for y'all next week, so be on the lookout for that. This podcast was produced by myself, Jonathan Dumas, with additional production help by the incomparable Lindsay Dumas, with music by the oh-so-talented Mr. Tony Deras. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share, and leave a review. It really helps folks discover the show. Till next time, y'all. Peace. <laughs>